I am Tingen, and this is the Parents in Tech Podcast. Welcome to Season 1, where we interview mums who are technology company leaders based in Southeast Asia. We want to hear stories, hopes, challenges, and tips from mums who are raising kids while pursuing their career aspirations. In this episode, we speak to Shamali, data science senior lead at Tokopedia. Shamali started her career as an electronic engineer before pursuing her PhD in biomedical image analysis and visualization. More recently, she has established herself as a leader in AI and data science in tech companies. Shamali is also a Bankit mentor, an academy to nurture high-caliber tech talent in Indonesia. She is a mom of two sons, age seven and three. Hi Shamali, welcome to the Parents in Tech show. To begin with, could you tell us a bit more about your family? Hi, Tian. So family-wise, I have two kids and mm. my husband and four of us have been living in Singapore since 2009. How old are your, both your kids? I have two sons, basically. The older one is seven, the younger one is three. So they are really a, naught, a naughty bunch. So it's always a circus <laughs> at home. <laughs> yeah, but I think I'm sure it's a very lively one. So Shamali, can you humor me? How do you explain your job to your children? I guess in this case, your elder son. Yes, correct. So my elder son is a little bit, you know, geeky type. He's the one who's really interested in science and he'll bring books, all kinds of books and, you know, maths, uh, science and everything. And he'll come and ask me questions. It's very hard for me to explain to him, you know, a data scientist is not really a scientist who goes to a lab and discovers something. He, he keeps asking me, you know, you're a scientist, you should try and discover new stuff. I try to explain to him that I actually discover stuff using data. So he's a big fan of Beyblade. I tell him, okay, uh, you know, when you're trying to find a new Beyblade and you're looking online and searching for it, um, your mama's algorithms gives you the best recommendations. You know, you should try and uh, find it on mama's platform. She knows what you like and she'll give you the right uh, advice. So that is what I do with data. I try to explain to him, we use a lot of data to model people, try and understand what kind of personality they have. Uh, how we can help them find the right things and, you know, make their lives easier. That's how I try and explain him uh, about my job. But it's tough. I think it's really tough to explain sometimes to the uninitiated uh, adult what data science is. Uh, exactly. But, and I'm surprised. Beyblades, I remember when I was a kid, more than a decade back, that was the in thing. I'm glad to know that it's still the in thing these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. People say technology changes everything, but some things never change, right? <laughs> like Beyblades. Exactly. Now, Shabili, you mentioned something that's really fascinating, right? You mentioned that, you know, your eldest son, it's, it's geeky. He loves all this science tech stuff. How did you discover it? And when did you discover it? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. So older yeah. one is geeky. The younger one is absolutely not. So I'm, sometimes I try to understand, you know, what are the differences? So I'll tell you um, how I understood right very early, like he's the geeky kind. You know, children have these... Uh, play cards right where they have mm. the letters a b c d and then they will have some pictures right a for apple and then for b there'll be a ball so we got him some some of those cards uh, very early let's say he was like two years old or something he was only interested in the letter t because it had a truck on it and then he will start asking questions about you know how does the truck work you know what kind of parts it has and this is at three so you know then we wow. realized okay maybe he's really into science and all of that 
That's so, so fascinating. And since you discovered a passion, how did you help him to further grow his passion, his curiosity? Books I found is something which was really uh, what my elder one was interested in. So we would buy all kinds of um, like cute little stories around engines and tractors. And you would be surprised how much content is out there. So he started with those. And then, of course, you know, these kids... Um, you cannot keep them away from screens, right? How much ever you try, right? So we try to make sure that whatever he was reading, we are trying to find media related to that. So if he's reading a truck-based story, then we'll try to find, you know, truck-based stories for him to look at uh, when he's looking. And then Legos, I would say, is one of the most versatile uh, toys. So we knew that he likes engines and trucks and science. So we try to give him some theme-based Legos. Once he was five, five plus, he really came to us and said, okay, I want to do um, the Lego technique. I want to go to a center where they actually teach us to make things with Legos. So he started doing his coding camps at seven. I mean, kids are different. My younger one, I show him all these things. He's really not interested. I, I mean, I showed him the same set of cards and my younger one actually picked up only the ones with animals. So he's clearly very different. He's really into animals and he reads books which are animals. He has Legos which are animals. So it's really two different characteristics. I think that's so beautiful. It's about yeah. understanding and discovering what each child affinity is. Yeah. Uh, and I love the fact that, you know, your, your son, you gave him all these platforms and these opportunities so much so that, you know, he went out to discover and he, yeah. he's asking you, right, to send him to coding camps. I, I do know that there's almost an increasing pressure these days to like, oh, everyone must learn how to code. But it's, it's so nice to see that that mm. comes from the children themselves and, and really a born out of a, a place of authenticity and, and mm. genuine curiosity. Yeah. So we mentioned about books. I presume you're talking about hard copy books, not yeah, e-books. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I'm very old school in that way. We also did mention a bit about screen time. So tell us, Shavali, how do you think about screen time? How do you set up the guardrails around that? And how do yeah. you manage that? I guess it's like everybody's problem right nowadays with work from home and, you know, having kids around all the time. We tend to give the screen for some time. And I personally feel that um, we need to be careful about not overexposing children to screens. But at the same time, I do not have a specific time bound thing. It's not like you get this half an hour, do whatever you want. Because um, in the beginning when I was new, like, you know, new parent, I wanted to be very strict that, okay, you know, you have this half an hour or in the day when you, you can watch it. But then that is also sometimes restrictive in the sense that, um, you know, he also likes origami. So he'll come and say, okay, I want to make this new thing. So he has a lot of origami books. He's run out of ideas. So he'll come and say, okay, I found this interesting project, origami project, I want to do it. Now you are thinking, do you want to count it as a screen time? So if you do that, then you're kind of restricting him and you're indirectly telling him, okay, you're not allowed to explore these. So there is a trade-off, but we mm-hmm. try and keep a schedule. Like we, we won't overdo it in the sense like we get this half an hour unrestricted that you watch what you want. But at the mm-hmm. same time, there are times when you know you you want to do something constructive go and do it but generally we feel that there shouldn't be a lot of structure in the day like we shouldn't keep a fixed structure for the children they should also have some time where they can do whatever they feel like and sometimes we force them to be bored without anything you know like we did a 10-day quarantine with the children because we went overseas and we came back we had to do it in a hotel so it was difficult but because the children were used to you know an, an atmosphere where you have have only 
a few toys you just use what you have make up games and you know try to keep yourself busy it was really a breezer like the 10 days we didn't have to increase their screen time we didn't have to give them you know pamper them with lots of toys and all of that so i guess we all need to sometimes sit and relax and just you know um, do nothing let like, at least for some time like maybe 10 minutes 15 minutes how much ever you can afford yeah doing nothing wow that's 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 new to me, but and it is also I think so important, right? I I just get the sense that we live in a culture where you always got to be doing something, yeah. you always got to be killing it, you got to be productive. I mean, there's a whole industry around hacking your schedule, hacking your body, hacking everything. But sometimes to just sit down and live with the boredom or or not busy yourself, right? I think that yeah. that is I think it's such a valuable skill. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. something I myself am trying to learn, right? Because you know how yeah. do you stop doing sometimes and start thinking? Yeah, um, it's really hard. Heartening to see how that's something that you're encouraging, and also the idea of not having you know strict, rigid schedules, which we all know kids hate, and then there's a very almost antagonistic relationship with sometimes. Um, that's that's really encouraging to hear. So Shamily, you know this is quite inspiring. Where did you learn this parenting from? Right? Are there particular mentors or even from your family that yeah, you learned some of these things? No, I don't. There's no mentor or anything. I just um, sometimes we do this comparison between when we were, you know, children versus the you know, children of this generation. So um, I know it's very cliched. Most parents say it, right? When we were young, life was difficult. You know, we didn't have all the luxury. We didn't have you know TV and all of that. But um, we cannot change that right neither do we want our children to be devoid of all the luxury when we can afford it right that's not even fair so we feel that we can simulate that in the sense that they should be able to realize that there can be situations when you do not have the luxury of everything and you still need to survive and it's very difficult to simulate that in a very developed country like singapore right how do you do it uh, pre covid we used to travel a lot and whenever we would travel we will not go into luxury hotels we try to find a you know a room in the middle of the jungle the children learn to cook they learn to serve their own food they learn to clean up and all of that it's very hard on a day to day basis we can't let them do it right because you know at home how do you force them right they they have right. the luxuries of you know helpers here and all the um, facilities they don't even want to cook and all of that but when the covid struck um, it was really hard right because they are at home and how do you simulate uh, such things so that which is where we started doing these kind of things we we, we will sit down and we'll just play we we'll just use cards or you know make cards with our own um, or sometimes my son actually makes his own games so he will write down 1 2 3 4 until 100 and then you know like a snake and ladder but he'll have his own version of snakes and ladders so he'll have obstacles and he'll have okay if you come to this number you have to go back 3 or you know things like that so i think all of this comes when you really sit down and you want to do something with limited means right so i guess um, basically we try and see like what we did when we were children sometimes it will happen that there's no electricity right um mm. but i can't simulate that right but we when we didn't have electricity we just sat down we played some games right we just created games so that's what we try and do that okay we don't have any toys we're sitting in this room we are just having a family time we can do whatever you feel like that is so inspiring it's almost like in this tech enabled world where everything is so always about pushing the frontiers it's almost how do you take a step back 
and how do you develop almost what I'll say survival skills? Mm. That, the survival skills itself per se, it's not that important, but I think it's the character building, right? That, mm. that you know, you don't get everything handed to you. So it's great, especially for holidays, right? I think that's always the temptation that you want to have a good time, you want to stay in a nice hotel, but mm. uh, that the kind of experiences that you you engineer are so unique. And and so with all of this, Shamili, right, what, what are some of the hopes and dreams you have for your children? Because it sounds like, you know, they're just this curious, this resilient, and it's things that you want to inculcate in them. Uh, what are some hopes and dreams you have for them? It's difficult. Like we have dreams, but we do not want to also um, impose them on children, right? Idealistically, I would want them to be able to survive themselves, right? Like, you know, be somebody who can buy whatever they want, you know, be a self-made person who can really take care of himself and um, his family going forward, right? He really wants to be a scientist. So I would rather have that as my dream because, you know, I don't want to really be a contradiction to what he wants to be. Uh, But basically, the idea is we want them to be self-sufficient. And also, we want to build a person who can survive outside in the wild world also. Like when I say wild world, I do not mean Singapore, right? Because in Singapore, we are very protected if you think about it, right? Everything is so safe and, you know, um, I will not be worried if they are out and about at 2 a.m., 4 a.m. because I know, you know, they are safe in Singapore. But of course, when they step out of the country, the the world changes, right? So I really want them to be self-aware and, uh, you know, be adaptable to situations which are not under their control. That is what I dream of and which is why we try and, you know, simulate all these things when they are young. But I know as they grow old, it's going to be harder, right? Agreed. It's it's really about the adaptability that yeah. helps them to to thrive. And and it's sometimes quite a challenge when like exactly like you said, Singapore can be such a safe environment. Um, mm. But I think being intentional about it, it's the way to go. Yeah. And I think Shamili, when I look at your career, adaptability also stands out. So maybe can you quickly take us through um, your career journey so far and what led you to your current role as a data science leader? I got married um, in 2009 and my husband moved to Singapore because his first job after his MBA was in Citibank. Back then, I was uh, working in a government institution in um, India. So there was no way I could get an internal transfer out. So basically, I resigned. Anyway, I wanted to do a PhD and it was in my list for a very long time. So I took this opportunity to apply to NUS and luckily I got an admission. So that's how I moved to Singapore. And then um, I did a PhD, which is mostly on uh, computer vision and machine learning. So basically train machine to understand pictures, like started with uh, medical images, which is more like radiological images, like, uh, you know, CT scans, MRIs, PET scans, things like that. I also went to Japan and worked with A-Star for doing things like mouse images. Like if you take a CT scan of a mouse, how do you read that? How do you understand what are the problems that the mouse is having? Is there any genetic problems? Um, You know, basically gene coding of mouse, things like that. So it was mostly biomedical and medicine related. Singapore is small, right? So we don't have a big volume of patients and a big volume of data. So it was getting harder to do real data science in medicine. So I moved on to more like uh, general purpose images, like instead of focusing on medicinal images, I started looking at normal photographs. Still in the beginning, it was health related. You know, Singapore has a diabetes problem, right? So we started building an app where you could take a picture of your food and then start doing your photo journaling. It was still related to health, but then again, the mode was different. And then from there onwards, I started exploring what else can be done using images. 
I actually joined a very early startup coming out of Entrepreneur First, where we were trying to generate ads using AI. So that is where I actually really entered the industry. And from there onwards, I moved to this uh, company called Tokopedia, where um, it's an e-commerce firm. So we are using machine learning uh, for e-commerce. And when you made the jump from research to industry, were there any challenges that you faced? So it's not really easy to jump directly from research to industry because, you know, when you are doing research, your focus is very different. During my PhD, as well as during the postdocs, I've always been working in real world problems in the sense that, you know, there was always a target audience, be it a radiologist, be it a scientist, or be it a government agency for which we were doing the food journaling. The whole research process was geared towards making a product which can be used instead of it being more like theoretical or, you know, so the research was more practical. Basically, the challenge was when I wanted to move from medicinal, you know, radiological uh, research to mainstream industry. To do that transition, basically, I moved from A-Star to NTU, and NTU had a lab which was um, doing a lot of projects in collaboration with industry. So I guess that was the bridge between core research versus industry. And then that gave me exposure to you know industry projects, industry collaboration, and from then onwards, I moved to industry that jump I really had to plan carefully because you know doing one postdoc and then another one uh, you would tend to not do it right you will feel that okay what's the point but basically the point was the bridge yeah exactly and and even as you think about career transitions because that's something that takes up a lot of time a lot of headspace how did uh, essentially your family come into the picture right because at that yeah. point well, even at this point you had two young children at that point they were probably even younger so mm. love to hear in terms of what were some of the considerations because yeah. something that especially young parents might face or parents of young children might face there's so many things happening how do I deal with it I'd uh, love to hear how you overcame that yeah I guess um, when you think about it, it's basically the support so mm. um, I would say ask for help we tend to think that we'll manage everything by ourselves. So it's really um, building a support system around you. Otherwise, it's not possible. So definitely your family, your partner plays a big role, right? And then uh, my parents really helped a lot. So they came in and out uh, from India to help with the children. And I have a great helper who is always taking care of the children. So my key is that, especially during transitions, um, you know, you really need that support system. So prepare for the support system more than prepare for the transition, I would say. Mm. Most of us tend to overdo ourselves and that is when the problem starts. So true. It's it's about being thoughtful and not trying to load on too many things yeah. and being almost recognizing what are you good at and for yeah. the things that you can get someone to help uh, definitely yeah. do that. Correct. Now I'm curious as to how do you think about you know, dividing some of these responsibilities and workload um, with your husband, right? What were some of the yeah. conversations like? How does that look like today? COVID was very difficult, right? Because most of us were working from home. So it was like two of us with the two kids. There was a point when even the kids were not going to school, right? We basically sat down and as much as I say that I don't like structure in my whole day, that was the time when we really sat down and made a structure because it was not going to happen otherwise. So my husband really said, okay, I am an early riser. So he would start his work really early. Like he'll start at five and by nine, he would be like halfway done, right? And then I will try and wake the kids up by nine, like, you know, slightly later. So then I hand over to him. 
in this whole conversation is not only about us the family but also the support right we did have to have this conversation with the helper also like you know we we are trying to do this so that all of us can really survive through this time i love how inclusive you are even bringing your your helper into the conversation uh, yeah. and making sure that it's something that is sustainable and works out for everyone i think that it's really really commendable and it clearly worked out well for you And also, Shamali, I heard that uh, you are also going to take on a new challenge, or rather, you are already halfway through the challenge of an EMBA. So, so tell us more about that, because you probably started thinking about this program during COVID. What was going through your mind? Was there concerns that, hey, you know, there's a lot that's going on, right? I'm building up my career. I'm taking care of my family, and now that's one more thing to look at. I'd love to、mm. hear that decision-making journey. Actually, in Tokopedia, I have a big team, right? So I have to do a lot of team building, leadership-related responsibilities. So then I realized that you know I'm learning on the job, trying to do all of that, but. There is something missing, right? I I do not have that business acumen, like、um, why something works and why something doesn't work.、Um, I don't have that, you know, the foundations of being a good manager, right? Which is when I started thinking that it's probably not fair to the team or to the company because you're trying to do a role where you are adapting, you're learning, but you know you could do much more if you had the good foundations. The role was also changing a little bit,、um, so I wanted to make sure that I'm giving 100% to the role, which is when the seed was planted. And to be honest, I was not rushing to this, but my husband actually started、uh, this conversation that you know this is actually the best time because you are、uh, this COVID, you're working from home. I know that a lot of things are being managed, but you get、uh, more time, right? Which is how the whole conversation started. I really like that idea that you never stop learning. And、yeah. you know, being very conscious of where the gaps in your skills were, and taking active steps to approach it. So I'm curious, why particularly like a formal program that has extended commitment versus something that's let's say a bit more short form? Because I'm sure there are also some parents on our podcast who are thinking about different ways and paths like yourself where they can grow. I、uh, would love to hear your thought process around weighing those different options. It also sometimes depends on what situation are you in. Of course, there are these short-term courses also, right? Which basically really, really focus on certain aspects of it—be it communication, be it leadership, be it you know digital transformation. So there are these small courses which are very focused. But for me, I felt like. I was doing okay in my job, but I guess、uh, I wanted the breadth, not the depth. So, I guess basically you have to balance between the depth and the breadth. If you are doing an executive MBA, which is very long in terms of the duration, and you have a lot of courses to cover, you can't go very, very deep into it. So, I do not expect myself to understand fully about finance, for example, right, or strategy, for example. But if you are doing a course which is core on finance, you will know much more, right? So I guess that's the balance: depth versus breadth. And at this point, for me, breadth was more important than the depth. That makes a lot of sense. And over the past nine months since you pursued the EMBA, were there any lessons or things that surprised you in your journey、yeah. so far? The most unexpected part of this whole MBA is basically the cohort. MBA is not only about the course. I guess it's also about all the people that you meet and you know you hang out with and you learn. So, I guess the professors and the course is really great, you know, world class infrastructure, content, and everything. But at the same time, the cohort is world class. So you you know you derive as much learning from the professors as much from your cohort as well. 
the company and the colleagues that I have met during the MBA program uh, are still an asset. And I, I would say an equally important asset when you compare it with what you are learning during the course. Yeah, I think truly they say it's, uh, I mean, the course and the content is one, but sometimes the network and the people, um, not just in terms of the utility value, but even just how they inspire you, right? The different yeah. backgrounds they come from. Okay. Like for yeah. you, I'm sure you bring a very unique set of stories and experiences uh, and, and each of your different classmates uh, yeah. have the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Shamili, on top of all of the things that you're building and doing so so successfully, I noticed you are also a mentor at this program called Bankit. Tell us a bit more about what Bankit is. Yeah, so Bankit is basically a collaboration between multiple companies. Uh, so the, it is basically a course to nurture the next generation digital talent in Indonesia. So these companies come together and they have built a course where the students go through formal training of uh, data science as well as uh, you know building real applications using machine learning. There are two parts of it. There is the coursework as well as then there is a capstone project in the end. So the capstone project basically brings together all the things that they have learned during the course. And then they develop an app which can be used by real you know, users, which they can really put it into App Store. It is basically um, developing talent in Indonesia, telling them how data science works, how they can basically use data to really solve real world problems. The hope is that some of them will really end up being, you know, a company which is actually solving a problem and, you know, adding value to people's lives. So that's the whole concept. But basically, we are trying to build the next generation of data scientists, data enthusiasts for Indonesia. I think that's uh, one of the things that's definitely needed, you know, with the whole explosion of data. Um, and mm. there's clearly a scarce scarcity of talent over here. So for people who are potentially considering, say, a career pivot into data science, where should they get started? What advice mm -hmm. would you have for them? That's a tricky one because, you know, there are so many online courses now and I've seen so many data scientists who are really self-taught. So it depends upon uh, really the background of the person. If you are into engineering, then you have certain perspective. But for me, I feel like if you really are serious about doing data science and um, it is always good to do a formal course. If we are talking about Singapore, there are a few data science courses from our universities locally in Singapore. My general feeling is if you go to online platforms and, you know, do some of these online courses, you go as far as just using what is available on the web and then reusing that to solve some problems. But if you really want to be a data scientist who really understands and is able to build solutions, you need to know the technology, in, you know, in depth. So a formal course, which is like a year and a half or something like that, would be the ultimate way to go about it if you can afford it, right? Some people might not have the time or, you know, there are a lot of constraints. But if you don't have those constraints, that's the best way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Nothing like the intensive, rigorous curriculum, plus also the, yeah. the, the support that you get from your peers and your instructors that sometimes it's hard to create in those uh, shorter yeah. forms. And even as you perhaps interview and meet quite a few of these people, what is the one or two things that you look out for when you think about hiring data scientists into your team? When we do courses, everything is very structured, right? If I go and enroll into a data science course, I'll be given a data and I'll be told like, you know, these are the steps you have to follow and you just follow them and then everything works and it feels like magic. But in real world, data science is not magic. 
at least 90% of the times, whatever we do doesn't work. And um, at those times is when you have to understand why it is not working because Mm -hmm. most of the time things don't work, right? And to be able to debug or why things are not working, you need to know why things work, right? It can't be that, you know, uh, you have a pre-built stuff and you're just reusing it and, you know, building on top of it. You can only make something work when you know how things can go wrong. And this is something that you learn when you are actually doing data science yourself using raw data. Mm -hmm. So when we are interviewing people as data scientists, I try to give them situations where, you know, it's more situational. Like we we do a lot of case studies and we say, okay, this is the situation. How are you going to handle it? This is the data you have. What are you going to do? It's not easy to answer such questions, but basically what we are looking at is the thought process. You know, at least the thought process of how you're going to debug it. You are not expected to debug, but you know, how you think through this. So it's basically the acumen, not anything else. Yeah, it's about are they able to approach it in a structured, thoughtful, kind of logical yeah. way. And yeah. things like, you know, the, the tech stack are things that you can learn, right? And you can yeah. even find the right people. Um, so I think that that's really useful advice. I'm curious, Emily, have you ever had to use the same mindset of figuring out what works, what doesn't work back at home in your parenting life? Yeah, always. <laughs> With kids, there's always in these situations where sometimes you have to try and debug. There was a situation where my older one, he's usually very curious type, as I mentioned, right? So he one day came uh, with a, you know, a book which was on drugs. And he came and said, okay, mama, you know, uh, I have this book and I want to read it. So then wow. you start thinking about it. Okay, so what worked, what didn't work, right? Wow. Wait, wait, wait. How did he even get the book? Did, did you yes. know how he got the book? Okay. Yeah, so that this is where the debugging started, okay. right? So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's read it. You know, when you come and you suddenly say, okay, you know, you're not supposed to read this book, then you actually are uh, making him even more curious. And yes. you are telling him, okay, you know, uh, this is something that I should know, but my parents are not letting me know, right? So then I started that debugging process there like okay so let's start and read about it he said he got it from the library and I was now I was like okay you can get it from the library but you would have heard something or seen something that must have been the real reason behind you going to the library and finding for these kind of books right and then in the end it seems like there were some children in the school bus who just said okay you are walking as if you are on drugs that's about it. That's what was the real issue. This is where it started. So getting into the depth of the situation without, you know, frowning on, you know, the outcome is something that we can all apply in every situation. You know, it could have easily gone very wrong, right? If I said, no, you can't read it or, you know, he could have gone to the internet and looked at YouTube videos, which is not something very pleasant, right? And we do not want to get into a situation where we have to monitor a person. We want that person to be responsible by answering you know, if he's asking logical questions, answer him logically and try to understand his thought process. That's gold, right? Because there's almost like a knee-jerk reaction, especially to something that's almost so black and white and does yeah. not like right and wrong. But I think yeah. that for you to be able to apply the thoughtful process and, and kind of working through the issues instead of just reacting to it, I think that's valuable. And like you said, right, it's better for people to, especially for children, to understand why they shouldn't do it than for us to just say, oh, you shouldn't. And then it kind of instigates uh, their curiosity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Shavali, if there's one lesson you learned as a parent in tech, what would that be? 
the one lesson i would say is prioritize usually as parents we tend to overdo right we mm. tend to do everything possible right um, especially as moms we always try and you know take care of the family take care of the house take care of uh, work and everything we want to do right i think over the last few years i've realized i really need to prioritize what is important for me and what is not for everybody i would say you know we should all sit down ourselves and you know out of 10 things we need to do we should prioritize what is the most important thing there are always urgent things and there are always important things and we tend to keep you know ourselves engaged with non ending urgent stuff the key is try to spend some time to prioritize and then have that prioritization as your basis for doing everything That's beautiful. Well, Shavali, it's been such a joy to have you on the show. If some of the parents would love to connect with you, how can they best do that? I'm pretty much quite responsive in LinkedIn most of the time, and I can also share my email address. So feel free to contact me. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Shavali. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Parents in Tech podcast with me, your host, Singan. We hope you were inspired on how to raise kids and build companies. To catch up on earlier episodes or stay updated with upcoming ones, head over to www.parents.fm to join our community of parents in tech. There, you can also drop me a question, idea, feedback, or suggestion. Once again, the website is www.parents.fm. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.